You're listening to Power Plays, the podcast hosting conversations between policymakers, engineers, business leaders, and others who are influencing the internet's infrastructure and institutions in ways that impact all of us today. Here's your host, Aiden Fertiline. Welcome to Power Plays, presented by Grant for the Web. I'm Aiden Fertiline. Today on the show, we have Joff Helsingis, a Swedish-speaking Finn, joining us from the Netherlands, who is a true internet pioneer. And today, we're discussing the time in the 90s that he was sued by the Church of Scientology, claiming that someone was using a server he owned to unlawfully distribute their religious secrets. Joff, welcome to Power Plays. Now, a question that I always ask guests on Power Plays is an icebreaker. And that is, what is a contrarian thought that you have about business or culture that others might just disagree with you on? Well, it's actually a hard choice because, as you might know, I'm getting to be a grumpy old man and I have so many <laughs> contrary opinions. So <laughs> picking a suitable one is hard. But I think my favorite right now is really about how somehow we've gone from an internet that was designed as a peer-to-peer network of computers where computers, of course, acting for people, accessing servers and services all over the network. And it was kind of, as long as everybody used, it, used the same protocols, that which are public, commonly agreed to protocols, you could sort of pretty much talk to any application, it's off any computer. And so, and now we're suddenly in this situation where we are using closed apps on a sort of closed devices, using some proprietary protocols, talking to some central cloud servers of a few handful of soft providers or some proprietary content distribution network. And it's of, we're really back into AOL kind of world gardens here. Um, and, and that kind of also relates to sort of the thing how everything now has to be controlled by an app and has to be sort of talking to a cloud. I mean, do I really need my kitchen stove to have Wi-Fi and talk to the cloud? And so having my doorbell not work because my internet connection is down is just somehow wrong. Is that a contrarian thought or maybe we just think alike, Jof? Because I feel the same way. And I'm reminded of a tweet by James Ball recently where he was saying, the internet is a decentralized network that we re-centralize by all using the same two to three services like AWS and Cloudflare to distribute our websites. It's the re-centralization of decentralization. It's worrying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's contrary in the sense that I see, still see so many businesses who are more than happy to put all their stuff on the cloud. And so I see schools putting their stuff in the cloud. I see, yeah, it's of, yeah. And again, it's getting harder to harder to find devices that don't require cloud connectivity to work. And so I would like to be able to turn off something without having to start an app on my phone. But an app, that's how people have decided to do it now. So you live in Amsterdam now, but I want to go back to the early 90s, back when you were in Helsinki. And as a side project, you're running a remail server. Anyone can email the server anonymously, and the server then forwards replies to the sender. Do I have that right? Yes, absolutely. So uh, again, yes, I was I was in Finland. I was running so pretty much the first commercial ISP in Finland. But so it was a, completely as a hobby project. I set up this thing. And that actually worked as a, let's say, virtual post office box, where you could sort of communicate both, exchange email, and communicate with news groups 
back when we had Usenet, uh, postings in the bits of an identity that was just a post office box. So nobody needed to know where you were or who you were, but they could still communicate. Who is using this virtual post office box? And why do you think they were using it? Um, well, it, it actually surprised me a bit as well, because I first set it up just as a kind of feasibility to study, to show that sort of, come on, on the internet, anybody can be a dog. Uh, but then suddenly people started saying, let's sort of, actually keep this running because we really need it. And it's, it was all over the world. Things like, of course, discussing sex, discussing religion, discussing politics in places where it's sort of sensitive. But so I was also surprised by some really weird things like the number of programmers who were asking questions using my server because they didn't want their boss to know that they didn't know how to do this. Um, of course, of more obvious things was whistleblowing, things like the Samaritans with their sort of suicide helpline, um, political dissidents, of course. Uh, one, my favorite example is Singapore, where you, at the time at least, couldn't criticize the prime minister without sort of it being a major crime. It's interesting that you mentioned Singapore. I guess I assumed it was only people in Finland that were using your email server. Or was it a bit more global than I realized? Oh, yeah, it was totally, totally global. There was users from all over the world. A lot of Americans, but of course, a lot of people from countries where there were some more repressive regimes, for example. I'm just trying to wrap my head around how it all worked. So I would send an email to anon at penet.fi. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize. I would send that one email and then it would go to everyone that was subscribed to the mailing list or it was a little more tailored and the message would only go out to subgroups or an individual or something like that? Well, yes, I mean, um, some, something that's of going back to the 90s, that's when Usenet was still a big thing. And Usenet was this, and it still sort of exists, but nobody uses it anymore. But it's, it, it was this of enormous, totally distributed bulletin board where basically some machines exchange messages with each other and you pretty much, you talk to one of the Usenet servers and that we posted something in a group and there were hundreds of different groups. And you posted something in a discussion group and it would kind of show up in that group on all those servers all over the world. So that was one of the some major uses for the server to post in these groups. Uh, but of course you could also just send email to a specific user and that user could, of course, be an email list or something. Thanks. I think I understand it a lot better now. And in terms of the setup that you had, was it just one server? How much traffic was it getting? How many messages on a typical day would be exchanged, say, at the peak of, of your server's life? Well, um, at its peak, it was of thousands of messages, um, which... These days sounds like a tiny bit, but in those days was of enormous. Considering the machine started out as a 386 PC and was upgraded to something much more powerful, a 486. Uh, yeah, it was a single PC doing all this. You said before that you started this as a feasibility study. So did you code it or it's a bit off the shelf? It was open source. What was the deal there? Well, I, I coded it. I coded the whole of the application itself completely by myself, basically using Unix tools, which were perfect for this, a lot of string processing and stuff like that. Uh, what I did sort of 
use for some open source uh, firewall toolkits and stuff for for sort of the security aspects of it. Something you learn very early on is don't invent your own security. Um, use something that's been properly peer tested. Wise words, Yof. And um, why did you start it? I mean, I know you mentioned briefly that it was a feasibility study for you, but was that the main driver or was there something else? Was it a social good you wanted to create this space for free speech? I, I wish it was that noble, but no, it was just of bloody stubbornness uh, and annoyance. With This was the time when sort of, uh, the internet was transitioning from having been a university network, an academic network, to being also open to commercial users and commercial providers. And back in Finland, there was this sort of, uh, university network system administrator who felt very strongly that, no, you have to solve on the net, you have to, according to their rules, you have to use your correct name and you have to be able to identify yourself. And I said, that, that's silly because that's not how the internet works. Anybody can forge a sort of from line in an email. Uh, so I basically just, my, the first cut of the server was just basically a sort of couple of days of putting together scripts to show that this is how you do it. Uh, and then sort of somebody said, yeah, but yeah, 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 but then you can't respond to those. And I said, well, hold, hold my glass. Uh, and fix that part in that code. After that, it was sort of, yeah, okay, I kept it running for a while. And then so I started getting these mails saying, sort of, thanks for running this. We need, we need it for this kind of stuff. And I went, ooh, actually, hmm, yeah, I didn't think about that. But maybe there is an actual real use for it. And after that, it was mostly just work on performance enhancement just to make it scale because the volume started going up and, of course, making it easier to use. And I think that was the most important thing. I mean, the, that it was easy to use. It wasn't the best. It wasn't the soft most secure. It wasn't soft this and that. It was an easy to use service that anybody could use. How were people finding out about it? Was it word of mouth? Yeah, absolutely. I know in the past that you have been reluctant to answer this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Where was the server physically located? Um, for a long time, it was actually uh, under my desk in my uh, home office. But then so we, when the volume started getting bigger, it needed a faster internet connection. So it was then in the machine room of the internet service provider I was running. Got it. And in terms of all the correspondence that was being sent, was it truly anonymous? Or if you really wanted to, you could see who was behind an email that had been sent? Well, that, that was the big weakness of the system that I was very clear about from the start. And so to be able to sort of provide two-way two communication, it had to know the real email address behind sort of the post box. So there had to be a database in that computer that mapped the sort of post box numbers to actual email addresses. So, I mean, yes, I could have looked at it. And in some cases, I had to go for technical reasons. When sort of emails bounced, I had to go and see what's going on here. But I very, very clearly made a decision sort of for myself that no, I won't actually go and look at message contents. I won't sort of try to look up who's who. That's because that's a slippery slope that once you go down on that, that road, it's not going to end well. Absolutely. It's all built on trust. Yes. And you had a lot of users that were very happy and really enjoyed using the service. But you also had a few critics. 
from what I understand, you made some reforms to the remailer over time. Like you restricted the ability to transmit images, but did that stop the criticisms coming in from these very vocal critics? Well, it stopped the. So I mean, there was of there was limit on that. So you couldn't post any big pictures. You also uh, any files that were big enough to contain pictures, and you couldn't post to the groups where people usually posted pictures. Uh, and that took care of the criticism about uh, people said, oh, this will just be used for posting porn. Of course, it didn't deal with the criticism coming from people saying, well, it's being used to sort of say nasty things about our government. Um, I said, yeah, sorry, it's, that's, that's legal in Finland. One particular conflict that you had, so the early 90s, you come under attack from the Church of Scientology as they claim that someone used your network to illegally publish church documents. Can you tell me a little bit about that incident? Sure. Uh, and, and so something about the Church of Scientology, which is important to know that they, in their court documents themselves, they say that they are a commercial entity legally incorporated as a church. Uh, and they make money by selling their training courses with their secret teachings. And of course, those training courses and the secret teachings are copyrighted. So they really used copyright to protect themselves. Um, so when critics of the church posted some of those secret documents to show what kind of stuff it was, it was, of course, a copyright violation. And they said, causing significant commercial damage. Uh, so in 90 Feb beginning of 95, February 95, they contacted me and sort of told me that sort of some documents had been stolen from their servers, proprietary closed systems, uh, at their headquarters, and whoever stole them then used my server to post that ma those materials. And because it was stolen, and they claimed it was probably burglary, they reported it to the LA police and the FBI. And but so they also asked me immediately, so can you help us? And I said, well, no, sorry, uh, I, I need to see a soft court warrant or something. And of course, which they didn't have in Finland, so they said, well, oh, okay, thanks. Um, so pretty much next day, uh, the Finnish police got contacted by FBI and Interpol, um, who sort of uh, <clears throat> start the case because of this. Um, and interestingly, there was a complication to it. Well, or there, in my story, there will be some sort of interesting coincidences. That's all. I got contacted by the church or representatives on a Thursday. On Friday, the Finnish police got a request from FBI and Interpol. On Monday, a major Swedish newspaper published a big story claiming the server was distributing child porn. Uh, based on this of investigation by this academic researcher so at the University of Stockholm, and of course, of all the Finnish press picked up on this and so it became a big thing. Uh, so, of course, when I started looking into it, uh, the claims were rather vague. Uh, so, okay, can we see any of the headers so I can see if it actually traveled to the server? Oh, we didn't actually, in our study, we didn't actually save the he email headers. Well, can you show me the pictures? Oh, we didn't save those either. Um, they did show a picture 
in the newspaper article, which was actually a stock photograph from a nudist camp. Um, yeah. Um, so, mm -hmm. so I said, okay, have you at, at all looked at the possibility that these might have been soft, whatever was you saw posted could have been forged to look like it came from my server. Oh, I never thought that was possible. Um, so yeah, rather weak, weak argument. So what, what do you do in a situation like that? I've been accused of soft spreading child porn. I, I walked to my local police station and filed a police report against myself. Um, and they investigated and said, yeah, you're right. You haven't actually done anything, but so, so okay. Um, they, they basically saw the police cleared me, no problem. But of course, uh, media is always much slower in correcting their information. But uh, pretty much, yeah, the next week, um, the Finnish police turn up with a search and seizure warrant to take the whole machine away based on the request from Interpol. Uh, so I sort of discussed with them and we reached a compromise where instead of taking the whole machine, the whole database, uh, basically sort of terminating the service and exposing everybody, we agreed that, okay, I will give them the two names that the soft court case asked for. Uh, so again, funny enough, after I gave it to the Finnish police, the Church of Scientology lawyers had the information within an hour and they immediately dropped the whole case. Um, yeah, there are sort of funny, funny twists to it. Um, so that was the first round, but then sort of after a while in 96, they had realized that this won't work again, that the Finnish police won't that quite that easily sort of assist them. Um, if they get a request, they will actually look into whether there's actually any substa substance in the claims. So there was a new tactic. They actually, again, started a court case based on some copyright violation, but this time they subpoenaed uh, me as a witness. Uh, and as a witness, of, of course, I had to reveal what I know. Um, otherwise I'm in contact of court. Um, and the problem is that sort of, um, the Nordic law, which is the Finnish law, has, is very literal. Uh, a judge can't really try to determine what the lawmakers might have possibly wanted to do. He has to look at what does the letter say of law. And there was a sort of telecommunications law that protected people like mailmen. So your postman doesn't have to sort of reveal what he knows about what he carried. He's protected. So same thing with a phone operator. Um, but because the law listed things like surface mail, telegraph, telephone, almost smoke signals, but not internet. Ah, internet is not protected. So email is not protected. Um, so sorry, Ulf, you have to sort of reveal this information. Uh, so that's sort of when I then decided that, okay, we don't have any legal protection for this database anymore. Anybody, anybody can come and basically sort of start a law case and that's where you get the information. So I had to basically shut down the server. I wanted to jump back to something that you said before about how the media can sometimes be very slow to correct their misinformation or their errors. And 
Sadly, I don't think that's improved even today. But I did read when I was doing a little bit of prep for our conversation, there was a story in a British newspaper that said your server was responsible in 1995, I think it was, for 70% of all of the child abuse imagery that was circulated worldwide. It's obviously false. But it sure sounded to me like something of a coordinated campaign that tried to slander you in the court of public opinion. Yes, well, uh, I, of course, I would never publicly say anything that I don't have so solid proof for. So, but, but there are just funny coincidences. So, yes, after the sort of second court case round, three days after that, there was a sort of the big story in the British newspaper, a, a very, very famous Finnish new, uh, English newspaper, which sort of pretty much having a picture of me and uh, Clive Feather of Demon Internet on their front page. For him, the picture capture was the school governor who sells access to photos of child rape. And for me, the internet middleman who handles 90% of all child pornography. Um, you can exp expect that, so that was a bit hard to explain to my grandmother. Um, so yeah, I mean, one of the claims there uh, was that so this FBI agent had claimed that sort of somewhere between 75 and 90% of all the child porn he sees is supplied to this remailer. Well, turns out when we actually found the person, he, he wasn't FBI. Uh, he was just sort of San Bernardino local sheriff's office guy. And he actually said, no, um, I said that most child pornography posted to news groups does not go through remailers. Um, and he said, actually, he thinks these kind of emails are a great idea, and he supports them. Um, so sort of somebody just totally made up the whole story. And as you said, ultimately, you shut the remailer down. Was that an easy decision for you to make? No, it was, it was a very hard decision because it kind of left a lot of users stranded. Um, I mean, I gave a very short notice that sort of quickly, if you want to establish alternate parts to communicate with whoever you're communicating with, do it now. I will be closing down this and then sort of a day or two later closed it down. But it was very clear that I couldn't anymore sort of in any way guarantee sort of their privacy because anybody who wanted the information could just sort of start a lawsuit, subpoena me as a witness and get the information. So it was, sort of, yeah, pointless at this point. Uh, they did, as a result of this, Finland did change the telecommunication law to include internet. But of course, uh, legislation always takes a long time to fix. Absolutely. It is a slow-moving beast. Indeed, back in 1996, you were quoted in Time magazine as saying that there's no real protection for free speech on the internet in Finland. Do you feel this way today still, or do you think legislation has caught up? Do you feel like if you were to create a remail server in Finland in 2021, if there was still demand for it, do you think that the legal system would protect you as the administrator of such a service? It would to a large extent, yes. I mean, they they very quickly fixed the law, well, as quickly as you can fix a law. Uh, and, and so it made it much more reasonable. But meanwhile, there's also been a very heavy pressure, for example, from the copyright lobby, uh, so there are lots of exemptions, and copyright is one of the strong ones where you can sort of, seems to be something you can use to override privacy. But no, I mean, in general, 
I would say that the current Finnish of legal climate is pretty good, but there are those exceptions uh, and something we see everywhere. After the service was shut down, what do you think happened to the people who used it? Where do you think they went to ask their questions anonymously? Well, I mean, there, that was also one of the reasons I felt reasonably okay closing it down was that there were alternatives by then. Um, there, there were soft peop, this whole idea about anonymous remailers had sort of really caught on, and there was this sort of very famous cypherpunks mailing list that sort of contained a lot of the operators who sort of produced these new, new kind of more secure, but of, unfortunately often harder to use systems. I mean, some of them were very secure and very hard to use. Some of them were trickier to use than my server, but also much more secure because, I mean, by encrypting the database and doing all kinds of things uh, and, and sort of exchanging encrypted message instead, you could sort of avoid some of the problems by complicated things for the users. But there were alternatives and there were things, so more and more things coming up that sort of none was as big as mine at the time, but there were alternatives that they could turn to by then. What do you think was the impact of this entire incident on you personally and on your career? Did you become a bit more jaded about the internet? What lessons did you take away from this incident? Well, of, of course, of, well, w- one thing I sort of learned to sort of be very careful with publicity and sort of manage media uh, and realizing it really needs to be managed. So there was a, it was a really good sort of crash training in media management. But uh, more importantly, it's also really opened my eyes for the importance of sort of being involved in the sort of policy processes about internet governance and internet legislation. So it did get me into a lot of that. Uh, and of course, at the time, it was a great door opener. Oh, you ran that server. Well, sure, we want you in this working group. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was something that until then, yes, I had cared about internet governance and legislation, but only to the extent that it affected running an ISP. And suddenly I saw it as a much bigger issue that actually was worthwhile to sort of look at on a bigger scale. Absolutely. One more question, and I will let you go, Yof. And it's just, what are you up to now? I know you are heavily involved in various internet governance policy discussions. Well, yeah, see, I mean, that whole sort of stuff was very long ago. So meanwhile, I had my sort of corporate career and sort of uh, was sort of in management teams of major telcos and stuff, uh, got away from the corporate environment. Uh, lately, I've pretty much only been, well, apart from sort of hob- hobby time spent on internet governance, I've been... Uh, so I'm I'm still co-chair of one of the major working groups in Ripe and stuff like that. But so my main job is now sort of really being uh, chairman of the board of a IoT company and so sort of doing a couple of other similar things. So it's sort of a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You're being a little bit modest, but that's okay. <laughs> well, Yof, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Aidan Ferdelin, and this has been PowerPlays. Next week on PowerPlays, we speak with Lior Zalmonson, an assistant professor at Tel Aviv University, about his research into the business models that underpin online content. This has been PowerPlays. 
Power Plays is a production of Etunu. The guests on this program speak only for themselves, and the views expressed do not necessarily align with those of Etunu. Copyright 2021 Etunu Corporation. All rights reserved.